Lord, we praise you. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts to see your word. Lord, as we look at Hebrews, I pray that each person here today would look to you and trust you as their great high priest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. This morning, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Last time, we didn't get as far as we wanted to get. And today, the title of the message is A Far Superior Priesthood. A Far Superior Priesthood. This morning, as we get started, what we're going to do is we're going to try to review a little bit in verses 11 through 14. And, and really what we see, I believe, in this passage is that we see the inferiority of the priesthood of Aaron in verse 11 through 14. And then you see, you can see both throughout, but the second part of that is the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus from verse 15 through verse 28. So if you think about it two different ways, it's inferior versus superior all the way through. Last time we were together, we looked at verse 11. Why don't we jump in there? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. And so when he says now, if perfection had been attainable, he seems to be saying, now look, if, if forgiveness of sins could be attained through the priesthood of Aaron, if forgiveness of sins and access to God could have been accomplished through the law, and through the Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, it sounds almost like I'm saying something else, the, the Aaronic priesthood, then, then why would there be a need for anything else? If it was attainable, why would we need another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Now, now this is important because then you start asking yourself questions like, why did God see fit in Genesis chapter 14 to put on the pages of scripture this mysterious king priest named Melchizedek? And then why would he give such interesting lack of info and then not mention this individual again for another thousand years until we get to 1000 BC and in Psalm 110 mention this name in a messianic psalm? And his point is, God would never have done such a thing if the old priesthood was sufficient to save. The verse that popped in my mind here that really helped me was Galatians 2, where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I often ask people the question. It's one we all need to be asked. When people articulate a view that suggests that they're leaning upon their works to save them, it's often important to look at them and say, then why did Christ die? What was that for? What was the need for Jesus to come? Now think about it. 
If you are depending ultimately that when you face God one day, God knows your heart, he sees your life, he grades on the curve, so to speak, and you're thinking, you know what? I do all I can to be a good person. I try to be religious. I'm good people. I do all these things. Let me ask you an honest question. Then why did Jesus Christ come in the incarnation to die a cruel death on a cross? You see, God wasn't doing that to do just something bizarre for humanity. He did that out of an eternal promise plan to redeem mankind. And he redeemed mankind because the old way, the law, the old covenant was insufficient. We needed a greater high priest. We needed a greater covenant. There's a reason the new covenant replaces the old covenant. And so he says, look, if it was sufficient, then why would we go this route anyway? And then he says, you know, the only the new covenant, only the priesthood of Jesus can give us access to God the Father because of the blood of Christ. We we go into verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. You know, one option here that the pillar commentary helped me with is that if Moses doesn't mention another priesthood, Moses on his deathbed basically affirms that the priesthood comes through the line of Levi. And in order for there to be this priesthood to come through Melchizedek, the way that Genesis reflects and the way that Psalm 110 reflects, ultimately we know that that implies that God has changed the law relating to the priesthood, that he has made that away. That was his eternal plan. But another option I mentioned to you last time that I think is exciting is a guy by the name of Jocelyn. He argued that there is transformation that results when Christ intersects the law. I love that phrase. You're rolling along on Law Street, but Law Street crosses over Messiah Avenue. And when the law intersects with Jesus, Things are fulfilled in a way that God intended. You see, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And what we see here is that I believe he's saying that that as Jocelyn goes on to say that the law becomes internalized because of Christ. I was chewing on this and it's the idea, I think, that the law changes in light of the fulfillment that Jesus brings that Jesus brings change. Jesus brings a fulfillment that the old way couldn't understand. The old law would command. It was holy and righteous and good, but it could not enable what it commanded. It was powerless to give you the ability to follow it. But Jesus Christ comes along, the perfect man, the perfect God-man, perfect in deity, full humanity. And what happens? He changes everything through the fulfillment of his life because he kept the law perfectly. And now in Christ Jesus, under the power of the new covenant, how in the world can we follow the ways of God? Because Christ in us enables us to follow his commands. 
There's a change. Again, remember his audience. They're Jews that are struggling, Christians that, have, that are Jewish, that are struggling with the temptation to go back to the old. And he's saying, look at what Jesus has done. We keep going here in verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Now, this is exciting. If you want to get an idea, when he says, for the one of whom these things are spoken, what is he speaking about? Well, in verse 17, look at what he says. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quotation. It's a quotation that comes from the Old Testament. The passage it comes from is Psalm 110. It's Psalm 110, verse four. That's the passage right there on the screens. Psalm 110, four. So when we read here, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Now this gets exciting. The question then I hope that you're asking is this. You mean to tell me that when David penned the words of Psalm 110, verse four, the fulfillment of those words was in Jesus, absolutely. And you say, how can that be? David wrote those words 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. Well, I remembered a passage, you know, in studying this that we've been looking at on Sunday night when we were studying the doctrine of Scripture. And notice this, I love this, Mark 12. In Mark 12, it says, David himself in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means this, 2 Peter 1, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so now when we get into the mystery of Hebrews 7 and we read this passage, what we're looking at is, is the majesty for the one of whom these things are spoken was Jesus Christ. I tell you, one of the, my favorite things that has happened in my Christian life was when I began to get exposed more and more to the reality that the Bible is one continuous book that is highlighting the hero of the book that is showing us our need of Messiah and our need of redemption and our need of salvation. And it's not that I used to think as a kid, the Old Testament was filled up with a lot of really good stories that you learned in Sunday school. You know, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the well. You've got all these wonderful stories and you go, man, that's great. We learn a lot of good ethical principles. And then we get to the New Testament and learn about Jesus. But I didn't understand that from the beginning of Genesis, you start to see signals and signs of the one who is to come to redeem the world. Genesis chapter three, the woman would have a seed that would come from her line that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham would have a son that would ultimately bless all the families of the earth. In Genesis chapter 14, you see a foreshadowing and you see a type in Melchizedek. On and on and on and on. It's as if the door, you ever been in your room at night, kids, when you're little? And you're scared. I used to be scared to death of the dark. 
My dad used to joke. He said, I can fly 35,000 feet and I can see the house when Stephen's there by himself because it's lit up like a firecracker. And so at night, you know what I wanted more than anything? I wanted my door to be cracked because I wanted to be comforted by the light in the hallway. I want you to imagine in Genesis chapter 1, that door is barely, barely, barely open. But as you move through the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, as you begin to move through the Bible and you begin to move through the prophets and you continue on and on and on, you go through the wisdom literature, that door begins to open more and more and more and more, and more, and more, and you get into Matthew and the genealogies of Christ, and that door has swung wide open. The one of whom these things was spoken was Jesus. These these precious Jews, these Christians, he's saying, look, this isn't some new thing. This isn't some new way. This isn't an attempt to borrow from the old, to give credibility to the new. This is God's promise plan from the beginning of the foundations of the world. Before the beginning of the foundations of the world. You see, it's past. It's eternity past. It's God's plan throughout for the one of whom these things are spoken And then he says, belong to another tribe. We got to keep moving here because we got to go all the way to the end of the chapter. He belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. The word belonged is interesting. It it speaks of something. It's like he was associated with another tribe. It it, it speaks of, this is one of those tenses in the Greek. I'm like far, 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 far. I'm like elementary Greek. And and, and like what you see here, though, is when you see a perfect tense, it's something that we all ought to be able to understand a little bit. A perfect tense is simply an action in the past with continuous results in the present. And it speaks of the voluntary nature of the fact that Jesus belonged to another tribe. It wasn't just because he was born. No, Jesus, according to the plan of God, he came out of that tribe and it speaks of the, per, the permanence of Christ. He, he continues on. He, he was belonging here, but now he keeps on. From which no one has ever served at the altar. This is fascinating because, you know, you could read Exodus 28, 1 through 4, where it's clear that the altar and its functions and its duties belong to the line of the family of Aaron. You don't see Judah. And you could read the the last words of Moses in Deuteronomy 33, verses 7 through 11. It's fascinating. He speaks very clearly that it's through the line of Aaron. What do we do with this? Well, what he's saying here is he's saying, look, God's plan was unique because God ordained through an oath that Messiah would come through not just the priestly line of Aaron. No, he wouldn't. He would come through Melchizedek, who was the type that pointed to the anti-type, who is Jesus, and he would be the king priest. And it would be a greater line. It would be a more superior line than anything you could come across. I, I was reading a while back. I've always been fascinated with the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls found in 48. And over the last several years, you know, 1968, they came across more discoveries. And in the last few years, one of the things they discovered in 1968 is they were looking at the community of Qumran, known as the Essenes. The Essenes were the Jewish people that lived down by the Dead Sea. They were looking at their writings and they found like earlier Judaism had like a Messiah been David, a Messiah been Joseph. They couldn't reconcile Messiah coming on the clouds of heaven and Messiah coming humble and mounted on a donkey. So they came up with two versions of Messiah. Similar to that, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that reflect Qumran, they come up with two messiahs, one coming from the line of Aaron. Why? Another one coming from Israel, but the idea is this. They couldn't reconcile how Messiah could be both leader and priest. They missed it. They didn't see it. And it's possible, it may not be the fact, but it's at least a consideration that the people in the book of Hebrews had been exposed to some of the same type of thinking. And what he's doing here, he's saying, look, let me demonstrate to you the promised plan of God. God has spoken about Messiah and has declared in his infallible word that his priesthood would come from Melchizedek and he would be the king priest. I don't know if this gets you excited. I tell you, uh, I, I understand. You remember back in chapter five, he says in, uh, he says in verse 11, speaking of Melchizedek, about this, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So one thing we gotta pray for is that we're not lazy in hearing that we're not apathetic because this is meaty, heavy stuff. But I want you to see something. It is showing us the meticulous, sovereign wisdom of God in establishing Christ. Remember I told you, I said, it's dangerous if you have a low Christology, a low view of Christ. Some Christians go through church. Some kids go through college. You know why kids go through college and they fall into progressive Christianity? Because they don't have a high view of Jesus Christ. If you've been taught nothing but surface, mamby-pamby things that are barely, barely truths about Jesus, don't be surprised if your faith is shipwrecked. But when, by the grace of God, we come to his word and we build an understanding of Jesus that God gives, we begin to see the wonderful majesty of who he is. He's far greater. Uh, you know, he, he, he's far greater. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now notice something here. He's saying, you know, before you can't understand because he would always come through the line of Aaron. It was only by who you were born to. It was your family. If you were in the family, you were going to be a priest. But now it's something different. And then he says in verse 15, this becomes even more clear when another priest arises. Now notice what he doesn't say. When another priest is born in the line of Aaron. No, he doesn't say that. 
when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. There's so much here. The word arise is a word that speaks of to, to rise up. Some people even believe that there are at least hints here of the resurrection of Christ later on. But speaking of Deuteronomy, a prop, remember when Moses said, a prophet like me will arise in your midst. And so th there's, this is phenomenal. It's speaking of how do we understand vocabulary that's speaking of God entering into the human story. This is the kind of stuff you see. You see this kind of language. He arises here. You keep moving here in the likeness of Melchizedek. Again, speaking of the fact that, that there's typology. Uh, one commentary said, it brings out the typology inherent in the comparison. What Melchizedek was symbolically, Jesus is in reality. Look at verse 16. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, that's what we were just talking about, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What we're gonna do in the rest of the time that we have this morning is we're gonna see five ways Christ priesthood far outweighs that of Aaron's. Five ways his priesthood far outweighs that of Aaron. The first one we're gonna see is it's superior in its power. Superior in its power. There's gonna be a comparison here between the power of the priesthood of Jesus versus the weakness and the uselessness of the priesthood of Aaron. Verse 16, he's become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. Again, the quotation, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's no longer genetic. It's not based on just familial right to the throne. This priesthood was based on the appointment and the call of God. It was based on God's choice. It was built on, based on the power of an indestructible life. This phrase is amazing. What does it mean, Jesus, his indestructible life? There's so many things you could come up with there. If we were gonna go around the room and say, what, do you, what could that mean? The word simply, I think, means here that his life did not cease. It doesn't dissolve. It's not going to cease. It, the, the ESV study Bible, the editors put, the power of an indestructible life Jesus' resurrection from the dead indicates his eternal priesthood. Death could not conquer Jesus, therefore his priesthood lasts forever. I mean, think about it. This priesthood is precise, it's ordained, it's sufficient, it's built to last, it's secure, because it's built on the power of an indestructible life. But look at the contrast. It's contrasted, with that which is weak and useless. Weak and useless. It's weak is without strength, powerless. 
What does that mean? It's the idea that the priesthood was parallel. Aaron's priesthood was parallel with the law. It was parallel with the old covenant. And while the law could highlight the holiness of God, it had no power to enable holiness. Does that make sense? It shows you who God is, but it can't change you. It goes back to... uh, Bunyan's quote, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. The law demands something that it can't produce. Imagine if I'm in a wheelchair and I'm looking at the law of God and it's saying God commands you to get up and run. I'm in a wheelchair. I say to myself, well, the command reveals to me what God desires and what he's designed, but the law is giving me nothing to respond to it. Bunyan goes on. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You see it? He's saying, look. Look, the old way was weak and useless. The old way was meant to point to the new way in Christ. And why would you go back to the old way? Because the old way's powerless. The old way's useless. You need a better way. You need a priesthood that will draw you near to God. You need a priesthood of one who sympathizes with your weakness, but one who is sinless. You need a priesthood of not just a man, but one who is the God-man. You need someone to do for you what you can't accomplish. I want you to stop right there. I want you to think about it. If you get nothing else out of this morning, I pray you would see this. If you are seeking to be made right with God, Outside of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand something as clear as you can understand it. It is impossible. You can't. You say, but why not? Why not? The law condemns you. The law reveals the holy commandment of God. And James says, even when a man breaks the law in only one point, He's guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. I tell you, this gets fun. You remember years ago, those that were with us, we went through the book of Galatians and we looked at how the law is a tutor that brings us to Jesus. The law is showing us in our inability that we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And the law imprisons us. It puts us in a prison where there's no escape. And the only escape that we begin to see that emerges by the grace of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. It makes all the sense in the world of why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because the Pharisee was too good for for heaven. 
Why? Because the Pharisee went off of the priesthood of Aaron and he went off of the old covenant and he was a measurer and he looked at the law as a ladder that would bring him closer to God. But Jesus revealed something to those precious people on the Mount of Beatitudes. Blessed are those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. Because when you're spiritually bankrupt, you begin to look for one who comes to take your place. And then guess what emerges? The beauty of a king priest who comes through the line of Melchizedek to do what the old law could not do. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. I was thinking about this. Some of y'all like those antique shows. And... Uh, they're pretty fascinating. I don't really know what the name is, so don't get on me for it. But you know, you have something in your attic that was left to you by a great-grandmother and you never knew what it was worth. And there's somebody who's an ex expert in the value of those things. And, and you take it to them and you're just thinking, I wonder, if they, wonder what it's worth. I wonder what it's worth. Imagine that the old law and the, the priesthood of Aaron gets taken to this expert and the expert is God himself. And he says, you know what? Well, not God, but he, a person that's evaluating the law. And he says, you know what? L look at the ceremonies. Look at the robes. Look at the ritual. This is pretty neat. Pretty flashy. And you're thinking, oh boy, this is good. This is going to be worth a lot. Great grandmother's item here is going to really make me rich. But then they keep looking at it. And they say, wow, this is great. The law and the commandment is good. And you're getting more and more excited, more and more excited as they look at that old system of the law. But then the expert looks at it and says, you know what? I got bad news. It's unable to meet the requirement. I got bad news. Rather than bring people closer to God, it actually keeps them further away. And your mouth drops. And they say, it is weak and useless. It's not worth anything. Nothing in order to save. But then they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of Jesus. And they start going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This isn't just a king. This is a priest. This is the king priest. This is one who sympathizes and is sinless. This is one who is perfect. This is one who is pure. He has a permanent, eternal priesthood. And lo and behold, through this priesthood, you can find access. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look, the old way is insufficient, but praise be to God. The new way is of great treasure. We keep moving here and we look at verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law couldn't accomplish. The law couldn't bring you to God. The law couldn't give you access, but thanks be to God, because this is powerful. It's built on an indestructible hope. There's a better hope that is introduced. And through that hope, what is the premise? What is the result through which we draw 
near to God. One commentary said, a better hope. The word better is a word emphasizing quality and signaling superiority. It's better in value. It's more excellent, as one lexicon says. It's better. It's strong. It's better. I love this word because you know what's going to happen? It's a better hope, but guess what he does in Hebrews? Now we begin to see the word better. And you know what he uses it with? He says, better things. 719, a better hope. 722, a better covenant. 8 verse 6, a better ministry. A better ministry gives better promises. 923, a better sacrifice. 1034, a better possession in Christ. 1116, a better country. 1135, a better life. 11 verse 40, a better provision. Chapter 12, verse 24, a better word. Think about it. These people going through persecution, facing the possibility of martyrdom, and they're thinking to themselves, maybe we need to go back. Maybe we need to go back to the old way. Maybe we need to go back to Aaron. And the author of Hebrews lovingly, kindly, boldly, courageously says, don't you even think about it. Look at who Jesus is. Anything, out of Christ, anything outside of Christ, I want you to think about it. Anything outside of Christ, whether it's Islam, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's New Age progressivism, whether it's, you know, the new atheism, whatever you want to come up with. You know, some people today, it's like their religion is being involved in, in, in social issues, whether it's social-minded justice, whatever you come up with, if you reject Christ, a Christless spirituality does not save. It condemns. It points people to hell. And the author of Hebrews says, but we have one who is better. I'm excited. I'm not mad. I'm fired up. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. It's good news for weary people who are like, I can't do this. I can't please God in my own flesh. I know what I'm like. I know how I fail. I know I can't measure up. And all of a sudden, the goodness of the gospel, every religion in the world is telling you how to climb your way to God. And, and Christianity comes along. And those who are weary and just burdened, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ descends the mountain and comes to weak and wounded sinners. Are you here today and you're thinking, man, religion's never worked for me. It's the wrong kind of religion if it's never worked for you. There's only one religion that works, and it's a religion by grace through faith. It's a religion that goes to Jesus Christ. I pray today you would see. I pray today, student, adult, maybe you've been in church all your life, and you've looked at this, and you've thought, I believe in the things of Jesus, but you've never seen the beauty of Christ. You've never seen yourself in need of a doctor. And you come to Hebrews and you're like, wait a minute. He's the one that can heal my soul. He's the one that can forgive my sins. We keep going here, superior in its power, but also superior in its promise. There's a lot of P's here today. I'm just going to give you a warning. This may be the first time I've alliterated this well in 14 years. 
I actually don't like alliteration, but it just started happening. I was like, I'm going with it. <laughs> There's five Ps here. Superior in its power, superior in its promise. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. You remember chapter 6, verses 13 through 20? He talked about oaths and that God swore by himself. Remember, we always would swear based on something greater than ourselves, but if God's gonna make an oath, he can't swear by anything greater than himself. So he makes an oath based on his own promise. And what does he say in verse 20? It's not without an oath. He wants them to understand that this is uniquely promised by God. It's uniquely promised. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Moses said Aaron. Moses said Aaron. But then I want you to understand, God promised. And look at the promise in Psalm 110. The Lord has what? Sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And what did we just learn earlier? The one that he's speaking of is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an oath and a promise. He won't change his mind. It's the eternal promise of God. And then look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's like he has an indestructible life. He lives forever. He's the one that can accomplish this. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. You may be thinking, what does that mean, a better covenant? Well, to these Jews that had become Christians, they would have been familiar with Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And listen to the words of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at this last part. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And here's where we are when we go back to the law's inability to produce what it demanded. But because there is a priest, it's a king priest that comes through the line of Melchizedek that's been promised since Psalm 110, since Genesis 14, what do we learn? He is the one who's the guarantor of these promises. Whereas the law was unable, as Stan read in Romans 8, 3, Jesus is sufficient. He is supreme. He is worthy of our worship. He is Lord. It's superior in its power. It's superior in its promise. But then thirdly, it's superior in its permanence. This is fascinating. I I knew there was a bunch, but there's nine references from verse 11 to verse 28 that indicate the permanence, the forever nature, the eternal nature of this priesthood. It's permanent. Um, it's permanent. It, I love this because he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. Who was the first priest that Moses installed? It was the guy by the name we're talking about, Aaron. Aaron, so I looked at, I think it was MacArthur said that there was 83 or 84 high priests according to record. I may have missed it by one. It's right in the 80s. I, my, one of my favorite places to hike, I hope I get to go with my kids one day, is Jordan and Petra. And, and, and I got a chance in my 20s with one of my buddies we had a basketball trip in Israel, a missions trip, and we stayed back. And the group flew out of Tel Aviv, and we stayed, and we backpacked Jordan. 
And we went to Petra and we spent two or three days in Petra. And when you go into the opening of Petra, that's where, you know, the uh, Temple of Doom from Raiders of the Lost Ark, that one big, big, big building that's the, that's the outside, not the inside of the place. But we, you go into this thing called a seek, and the seek is, is this long place in the mountain where it opens up, and like it's like part of the wall's right there, and part of the wall's right there, and you're walking through this sand path. You come out at the very end, and there you're looking at the, uh, the temple for these Jordanian ancient Edomites, and it's eight miles to go to the place called the monastery, eight miles one way. You go all the way back to the monastery, it's beautiful. You're in the mountains of Jordan and you get all the way back. And we went, we made it back there. I was sitting on the top of that monastery and it's like, it was really not smart to sit up there. You can climb up. And I was sitting there and you're, you're like literally like probably 60 yards, 50 yards up. And you're looking over and I, and I had an orange fall out of my bag and it rolled off the top and it went straight down. I was like, oh my goodness, I just killed someone with an orange. And I barely looked over nobody got hit by the orange. But from that area, they show you the direction and guess what the next big landmark you can hike to is? The tomb of Aaron. The historical place that they believe that Aaron is buried. And when I was reading this, I thought, wait a minute. The reason why the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. I was thinking, well, aha, because they got tombs everywhere. They're dead. And here's his point. His point is, is like these priests were temporary. Some would live this long. Some would live this long. But we have a high priest in verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Isn't that good news? You may be thinking like, I'm scared to death what the future holds. You may be thinking, I don't know what's going to happen with my retirement. I don't know what's going to happen with my kids. I may only have 20 years left. I may have five years left. I may be good to have two years left. Well, I got good news for you. If by grace through faith you've trusted in the king priest, his priesthood is forever. It's permanent. I don't care how far in the future you can think of. 17 trillion years, the king, priest, the Lord Jesus Christ will still be reigning on his throne. You, you go here, they died. They died. He doesn't die. He's permanent. It literally, he's, he's without, he's unchangeable. Uh, it, it's the idea that there's, you know, there's no transfer here there's no changeover. Christ doesn't at some point look for another priest that comes after him. No, when dad died, we had to do the title transfer. There's no priest transfers for Jesus. He's forever. It keeps going here. It, it, there's so many things I'm having to go over because we got to get done. Uh, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I love this. Uh, Tony Marita says, he, he saves in a comprehensive sense because he, he accomplishes all that the sinner needs. Think about it. He accomplishes all that you need to be safe. He accomplishes all you need to be secure. You may be here today and you're thinking, I don't know how to get right with God. I'm in turmoil. 
I don't know what to do. I have this guilty conscience, and now you're, you're, you're seeing this invitation through the glories of the Scripture, and he's saying, no, his salvation is to the uttermost. And then not only in a comprehensive sense, Marita, sense, Marita goes on and says, in a temporal sense, so also the salvation he accomplishes is effective forever. Whatever way you go is good news. You, you keep moving here. Um, his priesthood, he speaks about his intercessory nature of his priesthood. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What an amazing phrase. Uh, Wayne Grudem says, you know, there's three major roles of the priest. He, he offers perfect sacrifices. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice. So the priest would offer sacrifices. Jesus only has to offer one. He continually brings us near to God. That's why in chapter four, he urges us to draw near to the throne of grace, that we can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. But thirdly, as a priest, he continually prays for us. Wow. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. The next one we see here, superior in its purity. I'm gonna pick up there next time. I wanna close with something. I was thinking about, have you ever not been able to get access to something? I mean, this is a, I mean, have you ever been to a big, big ball game and you can't get in and there's just no tickets? Man, I've been there and done that. And, you, and you're thinking, there's no way I can't get a ticket to this game and there's literally no tickets at all. I've been to some big Georgia games and you couldn't find anybody to pay too much money. And, and they weren't there. You couldn't get access. I couldn't get in the stadium. Or have you ever not been able to get access to your car? Man, that's the story of my life. <laughs> Maybe your house. I, I remember so many times. Like I remember one time my buddies in Chattanooga. I'm terrible at golf, but I love playing with my friends. And we went home to get my clubs and I couldn't get in the house and I was looking through the garage and there's my clubs, but I can't get to them. Or maybe it's an ATM machine. Some of y'all that are real organized have no concept what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's a helpless feeling. You can't get access. I don't want to trivialize the beauty of the spiritual significance of access to God the Father through Christ. But I pray this would hit your heart. I pray this would change your life. I was, uh, just a couple of days ago, it was uh, John Calvin's birth date, and, and I saw Dustin Binge had a quote on Twitter, and, and this was the quote of Calvin, in Christ God's face shines out, full of grace and gentleness to us poor, unworthy sinners. I was thinking about, that's not what you experience with the law. The law reveals who God is. The law shines the holiness of God, but the law cannot give you grace and gentleness in your weary, unworthy state. But thanks be to God, 
There's a better priesthood. Thanks be to God. There's one who paved the way that now we have access to God. This morning, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? The Bible speaks, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think about Caesarea Philippi when Jesus was with the disciples and he looked at them and they were in that area where there's all those pagan monuments. When I went to Caesarea Philippi, I was amazed at all of the idols that in, the, in that area and Jesus in that area of a great amount of idols. He looks to those guys and he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or one of the prophets. But then he looks at him and he says, but who do you say that I am? That's the question that goes out to us today. I pray that you're not walking through Hebrews as a spectator, but I pray you'd realize that you're walking through Hebrews accountable as to how you respond to the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I pray you would see that Christ alone saves and he alone is willing to save. Would you bow your head? Lord, I pray that as we leave today, God, before we leave, I pray, Lord, that people would, uh, would look to you. God, help us to see the beauty and the, the wonder of these words. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.